Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. So back to our consideration of paradigms of leadership, although as we've indicated perhaps too many times, it's not really an Islamic category, but uh, being exemplary, being a model, uswatun hasana. Uh, is the kind of concept we're reaching for and perhaps by now having looked at uh, more than a dozen of these uh, uh, distinctive individuals who represent the aspirations and the transformations of the Ummah at various points in its history we've recognized that uh, these people do not represent a single form of Muslimness but rather represent ways in which as it were the light of revelation passing through the original prophetic exemplar then becomes prismatic and a whole spectrum of different human types emerges. Very important nowadays to recognize this because ours is an age not really of deen but of ideology. In the 19th century, one of the big transformations that happened in the Islamic world was that the traditional diversities and the tolerance of diversity which was normative throughout our history and particularly in the earliest times was challenged by scientific and Western and nationalistic paradigms. Uh, and the intimidated Muslims in places like North India, Egypt and elsewhere felt that they had to retreat into a single singular definition of Muslim selfhood. Uh, so 18th century Indian Muslims bore almost res no resemblance to 20th century Indian Muslims. And whereas once the tradition was embracing of difference and a multiplicity of human types and approaches to religion and madhabs and aqaid and turuq and civilizational uh, difference, uh, in the 20th century increasingly Islam became reshaped as ideology which tends to be a unitary type of thing. Communism, Nazism, ideology is really not very good at providing an indefinite set of boundaries of affiliation. Science becomes the paradigm and science likes to have one answer to everything. It's not a culture of ambiguity. We've already referred to Thomas Bauer's great book, The Culture of Ambiguity, in which he maps the creation of the modern Muslim soul, traces it back to those transformations in the 19th century where uh, Muslims still colourfully uh, enjoying their culture of ambiguity were confronted by stony-faced, black-clad Victorian missionaries uh, who really didn't like uh, the diversity and the splendour and the havoc of the East. And as a result, Muslims retreated into defensive and often puritanical uh, uh, life forms. Uh, so we could say that part of uh, our project is to see how Islamic authenticity is measured not in a defensive and reactive singularity, but rather in the affirmation of what the early Muslims called Riayat al-Khilaf. If you read the very early sources of fiqh, you'll see that one of the preoccupations of the great ulama, like Imam Malik, was Riayat al-Khilaf, making sure one is a shepherd for diversity and multiplicity. Uh, and this is something that in our sectarian and narrow and fearful world, uh, where fear rather than hope has become the preponderant subject of sermons, uh, has become difficult to reach for. But we will today be going right back into that primal formative period. We're not looking at some 
20th century uh, mullah, uh, we are going back to the age of the Salaf themselves. The best three generations. Khairul Quruni Qarni. It's in a hadith. The best of generations is mine, and then that which succeeds mine, and then that which succeeds that generation. So the first three generations are the sainted, exemplary generations of Islam, and nobody in the history of Islam has doubted that. So when we look at that period, we can look at it with the eyes of classical Islamic civilization, which saw in it, Imam Malik's world of immense khilaf and diversity, and also the effulgence, as we've said, the rainbow-like differentiation of different human types. Or we can see it with a modern fearful defensive eye, which wants to see them as kind of foot soldiers of some ideological revolution, all of them more or less trying to be the same thing. Uh, and what we look for tends to be what we find. But in fact, if you look at the earliest sources, Rewind to the earliest books of fiqh, the Utbiya, the Mudawwana, the Mawaziya, the Muwatta, you will find enormous diversity and a respect for diversity and a recognition that very often one can't come to a conclusion at all about things. Famously, the scholars came to Imam Malik all the way from Iraq and asked him 40 questions that they'd come to ask him. And out of those 40, he said, I don't know, la adri to 36 of them. That was how the earlier generations were. And in our age where everybody is saying, ha, let's follow the Salaf, that's the reality of it. An awareness of you know, the fact that perhaps one doesn't know. And this riayat al-khilaf, this recognition, this shepherding of difference. So we're going to be going back into that sainted, sainted apostolic age uh, and looking at one of its most uh, uh, spectacular individuals, and they, uh, very many of them are extraordinary uh, people, not least because of the difference between them. You see this in the Sahaba and the Tabi'in. These are not the foot soldiers of some communist party who all try to be exactly like the party leader. No, this is an emulation that produces this spectrum and this diversity. <clears throat> so if we have the courage to put aside the modern fearful insistence on Muslim sameness and a policing of boundaries and to get back to the age of the Salaf themselves, if we are courageous enough to see our religion as a space where difference is something natural and to be celebrated, then we can start to get into the world, which is the world of the story that we're going to be tracing today. And uh, the individual I want to look at uh, is uh, Hazrat Usaina Sokaina bint al Hussein. Sokaina bint al Hussein. So the daughter of Imam al Hussein. So she's from the third generation, great granddaughter of the Holy Prophet himself, from the Ahlul Bayt particularly pure and absolute lineage. The Ahlul Bayt today, if they're descended from Sukaina, will very much describe themselves proudly in those terms because her lineage continues. So from the Salaf and from the Ahlul Bayt, daughter of Al-Hussein, la gubara alayha, as the Arabs say, no dust settles on her name. Uh, 
And as we chart her story, we will see how shallow and reductionist and miserable is the modern Islamic attempt to reduce Islam to nothing other than a kind of dull, fundamentalist, killjoy puritanism. And the Salaf were not that. They were diverse. So the story here begins, and it really is, even though she's not remembered primarily for her life story, uh, but for actually her contributions to Arabic literature, is one of the things we'll be focusing on later on, Sulkana as a, a great literary critic. Uh, the story begins uh, with a famous meeting during the Khilafah of Omar ibn al-Khattab, where he's together with the great Sahaba uh, and amongst them are Imam Ali and Imam Ali's two sons uh, and some of the other Sahaba and they're talking about these amazing things that are happening to Islam in the time of uh, uh, Imam Omar, the expansion of Islam to become a great world power, uh, the simultaneous uh, conquest of Persia and Byzantium and those other places and the move into North Africa. It's phenomenal. They're talking about this and saying, well, what, what does this mean? During this majlis, somebody nobody seems to know comes to the door and says, can I come in? And uh, this is not the green zone in Baghdad with uh, face recognition technology. No, this is Sayyidina Omar, this is a stranger. Welcome, marhaban, let him come in. So the man comes in. Uh, nobody's seen him before. And this is in Ibn Hazm, Jamharat and Sab al-Arab. One of the good things about focusing on the biography of Sayyidah Sukaina is that we actually have a lot of information about her. Part of the problem we have in, in determining the life story of a lot of Muslim women in the history of the Ummah is that usually through their own preference, it's kind of private and doesn't, doesn't get written down, but partly because of her contribution to Arabic literature and partly because she's the, the daughter of, of Imam Hussein. We have a lot of facts. So here's Ibn Hazm, Jamharat Ansab al-Arab, who tells this story uh, with particular clarity. So this stranger comes, ala annahu ma kana yazharu bilbabi hatta ta'allaqat bihi al-absar, wa huwa yatakhatta riqab al-nasi ila al-khalifa liyuqaddima ilayhi al-tahiyya. So the man comes in and then suddenly everybody is looking at him while he is stepping over people's shoulders, they're sitting on the floor in the traditional way, in order to convey his greetings to the Khalifa. Everybody falls silent. And they want to know who is this man who really seems so dignified and of aristocratic bearing. Uh, and the Khalifa asks who he is, and he replies, I am Imru al-Qais ibn Adi ibn Aus. Wahina idin arif al-Qawmu fihi sayyida bani kalb. Wakana la yazalu ala nasran yatihi. So the penny drops. This is before Instagram. People have hear, heard of famous people. They don't know who they, what they look like. And they realize this is the lord of the Bani Kelb, one of the big tribes of Arabia, and also one of the top Arabic poets of the kind of pre-Islamic period, Imr al-Qais. And we still have his Mu'allaqa odes. Remember that in the Hajj season, before the arrival of Islam, the big thing that the Arabs had in their culture, the only thing in their culture, really, 
was the poetry, and the great poets would compete at the market of Orcas, and the, the winning poems would be, held, would be honoured by being suspended from the, the drapes of the Kaaba. So Imr al-Qais, the great poet, is here. That's like, I don't know, Brad Pitt or some other big influence. Everybody's going, oh, wow, a celeb is here. Uh, but it's not some stupid Hollywood uh, character, but somebody who has really got to the depths of poetry's capacity to invoke beauty, and th- th- that poetry was, was great. Well, he's still a Christian, not pagan, but, but Christian. So Omar amiably engages him in conversation, but of course he has just one thought in his mind, Will God honor the Khalifa by being the one on whose hand Imra al-Qais ibn Adi is going to take his shahada? This is, of course, the way the Khalifa thinks. وَأَسْلَمَ سَيِّدُ بَنِي كَلْبِ And the, uh, the chief of the tribe of Kalb, Imra al-Qais, takes his shahada in that spot. And then you see, uh, this really is about leadership, although we haven't done Sayyidina Omar yet. وَإِذَا كَلَمْ يَتَرَدَّدْ أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ فِي أَنْ يَعْقِدَ لَهُ عَلَى مَنْ أَسْلَمَ مِنْ بِالشَّامِ At that moment, uh, the commander of the faithful appoints him to be the general over the tribes of Quda'a who are in Syria. And Omar sends out for a lance and, in a symbolic gesture, invests him with this lance. Uh, so this, of course, amazes everybody because this is a major um, position of responsibility. So um, if we look at the Arabic, we'll try and stick close to the sources um, this time. هكذا في أول اللقاء وليس للرجل سابقة في الإسلام This is on the first meeting and the man has no precedence in Islam. The tradition was that the, the muhajireen and then the ansar, that uh, the length of your Islam was a major factor in being appointed to a high position. That this guy has been a Muslim for a few seconds. أو كما قال عوف بن خارج المري Somebody who was there, عوف بن خارج وَكَانَ يَوْمَئِذٍ بِالْمَجْلِسِ فَوَاللَّهِ مَا رَأَيْتُ رَجُلًا لَمْ يُصَلِّ لِلَّهِ رَكْعَةً قَطْ أُمِّرَ عَلَى جَمَاعَةٍ مِنُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ قَبْلِ إِمْرِئِ الْقَيْسِ I've never seen a man who hasn't even prayed a single rakah given authority over a group of Muslims the way Ibn al-Qais was given this authority. But Omar knew his man. Part of leadership is making the right appointments. And then something else happens in this uh, majlis, which takes us closer to the subject of our story. So the historians report this. So the guy leaves, and then the people are still kind of dazed by the shock of this event, Brad Pitt takes his shahada and becomes a field marshal, and they're processing this. 
Uh, and then they see Ali ibn Abi Talib takes his sons and go out to follow Imr al-Qais. في أثر الوافد الذي خرج وشيكا يحمل اللواء بني قضاعة بالشام. So this man just gone out carrying this lance. Um, وحث علي خطاه حتى أدرك إمرأ القيس. So Ali hurries until he catches up with Imr al-Qais. فاستوقفه محييا. And he stops him and greets him. ثم تقدم إليه يقول. And then he goes over to him and says أنا Ali ibn Abi Talib, I'm Ali ibn Ammir Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa sihri. I'm the cousin and the son-in-law of the Holy Prophet. وهذان وأشارة إلى الحسن والحسين. And these, pointing to Al-Hasan and Al-Hussein, ibnaya min bintihi al-Zahra. These are my two sons by his daughter Fatima. فَأَقْبَلَ إِمْرُ الْقَيْسِ عَلَيْهِمْ بِكُلِّ وَجْهِهِ إِمْرُ الْقَيْسِ went to him and in the courteous Arab tradition you don't do that to somebody but you turn with all of your face and address them so he's, he's doing this وَرَاحَ يَمْلَأُ عَيْنَيْهِ مِنْ آلِ النَّبِيِّ الَّذِي لَمْ يُكْتَبْ لَهُ شَرَفُ صُحْبَتِهِ وَنِعْمَةِ رُؤْيَتِهِ and so he fills his eyes with the sight of the family of the Holy Prophet the Ahl al-Bayt um, when he had not himself had the good fortune of uh, having been honoured by the company of the Prophet and having had the blessing of seeing him. And whose messengerhood he believed in yeah, just a few moments ago, and that was his conversion. And Ali continues and says, we want to be your relative, so marry into our family. So this is an even more startling thing. فما تلبثوا فما تلبث إمرأ القيس أن قال إمرأ القيس immediately says مرحبا بكم آل بيت النبي قد أنكحتك يا علي ابنتي المحيا ثم أقبل على صبتي الرسول وهو يضيف أنكحتك يا حسن سلمة بنت إمرئ القيس وأنكحتك يا حسين الرباب بنت إمرئ القيس. So الحسن I give you in marriage my daughter سلمة and الحسين I give you in marriage my daughter رباب بنت إمرئ القيس. Now that's in Tabari, the great early Muslim historian. Another kind of stunning event, but it's indicative of the spontaneity and the instant perspicuous judgment that those people were capable of. And the fact that if somebody was a new Muslim, didn't matter at all. Nowadays, oh, my daughter wants to marry a convert, but I really think that she should marry blah, blah, blah. And that's the kind of jahiliya that we've reverted to. But you can see uh, that was not the way of these people. So how old was Imam al-Hussein when he marries al-Rabab? Uh, it seems he was 18, but very famous already for something we don't usually associate with teenagers, uh, waqar or dignity, uh, and also his physical resemblance to the Holy Prophet. People used to say, if you want to know what the Holy Prophet looked like, then go and look at uh, Al-Hussein. Um, they said they found the Prophet's fragrance in him. Uh, Al-Rabab, it seems, is still a child. The marriage wasn't consummated, this is just an engagement. 
So he says, I give you Salma, I give you Arabab, but um, it's a, a pledge, it's a betrothal. Hmm. Uh, she was so young that they couldn't make haste to the marriage, so she remained still in her father's house. And several years passed, and of course, this is a time of gigantic political transformations, and particularly transformations which uh, affect the, the Ahl al-Bayt, the prophetic house, the early tensions in Islam, the fitness, the kind of Bani Umayyah moving the uh, Ahl al-Bayt, uh, the Hijaz, Syria. Uh, and externally, on the frontiers as well, immense events taking place. So Islam is now on the throne of the Caesars and the, the Shahs of Persia, uh, the pharaohs of Egypt. The world is really changing. And then the Khalifa, Omar ibn al-Khattab, in the year 23, is stabbed to death uh, by uh, Abu Lu'lu'a. And of course, there's an enormous political crisis. But under Othman, as we saw in, in that paradigm lecture, the conquests continue unabated. Uh, and in the year 27, uh, al-Hassan al-Hussein joined the army that's going into uh, North Africa. 10,000 Muhajirin and Ansar. Uh, are in Africa under Abdullah uh, ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Sarh, one of those amazing genius generals. After about two years in the field, they return victorious to uh, Medina, uh, and that's when the city uh, is able to rejoice at Imam al-Hussein's marriage to Rabab. Uh, we're told a very simple wedding. Uh, a child is born, this is Abdullah ibn al-Hussein, and also a daughter. And then another uh, political shock uh, of a different kind, Hazrat Othman is assassinated in the year 35, and then Imam Ali is hailed as his successor, uh, his two sons by his side, and then he's assassinated by the Khawarij. Muawiyah is now Khalifa. Al-Hassan cedes authority to him in a formal pledging of, of authority, in order to save Muslim blood. Uh, Al-Hussein pledges allegiance to Muawiyah and joins him in the siege of Constantinople in the year 49, which is one of the sort of most amazing things that the Sahaba do. They grew up in the desert and in Medina and then the, in their tents around Constantinople, greatest city of the world, and of course and the Sahaba buried there to this day. That's the, uh, the, the far horizons that, that these people had. Uh, and then he returns from the campaign and becomes a Hadith instructor in the mosque. <coughs> uh, at some point in this time, although we didn't really have a date for Sukaina's birth, uh, Sukaina bint al-Hussein is uh, born. You can more or less calculate, since the historians say uh, she died in the year uh, uh, 117 of the Hijra, uh, <coughs> that she was probably born around 47. Um, in other words, about seven years after uh, Imam Ali's assassination and into the reign of, of Muawiyah, because we're told she died at about 70. Her name, everybody calls her Sokaina. There's a big shrine for her, a uh, rather beautiful ancient building in uh, the Southern Cemetery in Cairo, where a lot of the Ahlul Bayt are. Sayyidah Zainab is the famous one, but there's also uh, Sayyidah Nafisa uh, and uh, Sayyidah Ruqayya and others. Uh, it's quite a beautiful place, rather ancient, Fatimid, 
Fatimids obviously had concern for the Ahl al-Bayt, so the buildings tend to be from their period. Uh, there's different names for her, which was not uncommon at the time. Uh, sometimes she was called Umayma, which is a common Arab girl's name. Uh, her, if it had been on her passport, of course, it would have been uh, Amina bint al Hussein, uh, named after the Holy Prophet's mother, Amina bint Wahab. But her mother, Rabab, as mothers do, when she was a small, gave her a nickname. The nickname was Sukaina, or sometimes Sakina, because uh, the old Arabic texts are not given vowels. We can't be entirely sure whether it's Sukaina or Sakina. Um, and here there's a kind of irony, because Sukaina, Sakina, there's no Arabic word that indicates serenity and peace more than Sakina, but actually she was throughout her life an incredibly active and vivacious uh, person and was, we are told, like that also as a child. Um, always gazes and kisses came in her direction, uh, we're told, and uh, she, had, she was famous for her marah, she was a child who really liked fun and games. So why was she given the nickname Sukaina, Sakina, that Muslims now remember her by? Well, some, some historians speculate that it's because she brought with her sort of tumbling around and her fun and games peace into the prophetic house at a time of external turbulence, or the people felt Sakina peace when they looked at her. Um, and it was a time of trauma, of course, and her joyfulness was a great compensation. When she was only three, her uncle Imam al-Hassan died. Um, we, because we have, as I say, quite a lot of information about this, even in terms of family life, it's clear that Imam al-Hussein was really, really devoted to his women folk. Um, and he was sometimes reproached for this. Some of the Arabs thought this sort of Uxorious nature is not really what we expect of a, of a hero, but he replied <laughs> with a poem which has been preserved from uh, Imam al-Hussein. Al لَعَمْرِي إِنَّنِي لَأُحِبُّ دَارًا تُضَيِّفُهَا سَكِينَةٌ وَالْرَبَابُ أُحِبُّهُمَا وَأَبْذُلُ بَعْدَ مَالِي وَلَيْسَ لِلَائِمِي فِيهَا عِتَابُ ولست لهم إن عتبوا مطيعا حياتي أو يغيبني التراب which means something like by my life um, I love a house uh, in whom in which Sakina and Rabab are the guests uh, I love both of them and I spend my money in their support and I do not accept the reproach of anybody who would reproach me for that um, and this is my life, and I will not obey the reproaches uh, uh, until the time when the dust uh, covers me. Um, this is narrated in many of the early texts of Arabic poetry and you know, indicates that he clearly was not interested in the kind of sort of more tribal, macho thought that you didn't really have a sort of strong affection for the women of your house. Um, uh, sometimes it's thought that this reproach that Imam al-Hussein spent a lot of time with his family uh, is based on 
the idea that some people thought that he should have been taking a more active political interest in the affairs of his time. You're spending all the time at home with your family and your little girl. Uh, you know that the Muslim Ummah needs you. That kind of reproach seems to have been around, but he's not going to uh, put up with that. Uh, we know that uh, Sukaina actually, in her kind of running about the house and her playfulness, always tried to avoid discussing the things that visitors were discussing, uh, the um, political clouds that were gathering, in order to give him some sakina at home. But uh, she was following the news and was very affected by the news um, because of the risks that it posed to um, her family. She was never heard to complain, nor was she known uh, to be tearful. <coughs> now, she has a sister, Fatima, and they're really, really different. Um, sometimes, you know, she was asked, why is it that you're both daughters of the same father uh, and you're so unlike Fatima? Fatima's always in a corner, sort of praying and remembering uh, the Akhira and Sulkaino is kind of rolling around the house giggling. I said, it was because of our names. You named Fatima after her grandmother and you named me after Fatima's grandmother. Uh, she spent most of her life in the Jahiliya, the world of poetry. And so <laughs> Fatima was the, the austere figure. An example of a sort of slightly edgy repartee that she was famous for. Um, Fatima is said to have been more beautiful than Sukaina, but didn't have her kind of playful spirit. Um, there's various family reasons uh, for that. Um, before uh, the marriage, her mother had been through a very uh, difficult uh, divorce before that. That's one explanation that they offer. Um, so she has a sister, Fatima, who's very different. And she has her brother, Abdullah, who we've already mentioned. She has half-brothers as well. Imam Hussein has other wives. And these are important in the history of the Ahl al-Bayt. There's Ali al-Akbar, his mother is a woman called Layla, bin Abi Murrah al-Thaqafi. And his uh, mother is uh, Maimona bin Abi Sufyan bin Harb. We need to think about that. If you look at their marriages, you can then start to step back from some of the later kind of conflictual readings of what's happening at that period. We think, oh, the Umayyads are against the Ahlul Bayt and they hate the Sufyanids and it's all a kind of like two families feuding with each other. Uh, it's easy to forget that Imam Ali had a son called Abu Bakr and another son called Omar. This is mentioned by all of the historians these later projections of a simple dichotomy between Sunni and Shia. In this period, nobody would have understood any of that. You might have your political preferences. I think he should be Khalifa. I think he should be Khalifa. But the idea that this was some kind of cosmic uh, split or battle between light and dark was just, just wouldn't have been recognized. And the later doctrines, the doctrines of the later infallible imams and so forth, in this generation, it's just... Uh, uh, ahistorical to say that these would have been understood. So uh, note Imam Hussein is marrying into women from Abu Sufyan's family and that doesn't seem to be uh, a problem. Um, 
Yeah, another son, Ali al-Asghar. So there's Ali al-Akbar and Ali al-Asghar, the greater and the, the, the younger Ali. And Ali al-Asghar is known more usually as Ali Zain al-Abidin. And she's interesting because uh, she's born to Sulafa, who is the daughter of Yazdegerd, who's the last of the Persian emperors. So this is even marrying outside the Arabian world into the Persian world. Uh, so even though we think Ahl al-Bayt, the lineage, purity, uh, this is not what the Ahl al-Bayt actually means. It's not some kind of perfectly maintained DNA. Uh, it's a, even if it's half a drop of the prophetic blood, that is fully sufficient uh, to convey full membership of the Ahl al-Bayt. How that particular quality is transmitted, it's impossible to know. But yeah, I've been to a village in, in Bosnia, up in the clouds, central Bosnia. And the tradition there is that only the Ahl al-Bayt are allowed to live in the village. You go to the village and all the kids have blonde hair and Ahl al-Bayt. Um, so, and this has been an important spiritual principle in, in, in the Muslim world. So you know, the Persian blood is being honored by this marriage as well through Ali Zain al-Abidin. One of her sisters marries Muhammad bin Abi Bakr, the son of Abu Bakr. So again, the idea is that there isn't this kind of rivalry. It's about a political allegiance. It's not about anything else. So Ali Zain al-Abidin is about uh, eight or nine years older than Sukaina, um, known as a very austere child. He didn't like to play much. He was called the Zahid of the family. So Imam Hussein has uh, four sons and two daughters. The daughters, again, Fatima and Sukaina. But it's pretty clear that Sukaina is his favorite. Uh, remember in his poem, he says, La amri inni I love any house which contains uh, Sukaina and his wife, Rabab. Now, the politics uh, are the cloud on the horizon. Four years before Muawiyah dies, Muawiyah appoints his son Yazid as his heir apparent. And this looks even more problematic in many mosque-going circles. In the year 60... Yazid takes over. Imam al-Hussein is in Mecca teaching hadith, not talking about politics, uh, but regarded as a potential rival by Yazid. And Sukaina now, this is really when she comes into her own, uh, not quite debutante, that's a bit of a uh, uh, 1920s concept, but she's 13. And she's already known in Mecca as quite a personality. Uh, she used to roam around Mecca. She loved to visit the places associated with the Sahaba and also learning from the city's great poetic heritage. She has a kind of mind that can hoover up poetry and uh, she's a very good critic. Um, this is a kind of aristocratic milieu. Uh, many of the Quraysh there are kind of aficionados of poetry, and there is a strong kind of salon culture of people sitting around and reciting poetry to each other and really, really enjoying it. Um, you can still see that in traditional Arab places. Um, I very soon got out of my depth in Cairo when these old guys were sitting around and somebody would recite a long qasida from some 12th century Iraqi poet, 
Another thing was that you could only interrupt that person when you had another Qasida that was in the same meter and was using the same figures, sort of alliteration or something, and then it was your turn. So I, I never managed to interrupt. Uh, but it is, it's the great kind of cultural thing of the Arabs, their language and, and, and their poetry. And this was um, certainly something that she was getting into uh, in, in Mecca at the age of only 13. Uh, the Hajj was a great opportunity to learn from poets coming from wherever. And the Hajj in the year 60 was a significant one because, of course, this is where the, the Khilafah is changing. And there's political emissaries, spies... Um, fifth columnists, stool pigeons coming from Iraq and from Syria just to keep an eye on the Hijaz and particularly on the Ahl al-Bayt. But she's not involved with that. She's, as it were, having her career launched as a sort of literary phenomenon and not just a literary phenomenon. And here is where some modern Puritans might scratch their heads even though it's documented in all of the histories. She's a kind of style icon all of the teenage girls in Mecca want to be like Sukaina, the way she walks and the way she dresses. And there's even a hairstyle, a turra sukainia, which is a particular curl in the hair. And it kind of all the girls in Mecca want to be like that. Uh, so the, the current sort of, what you call them, influencers nowadays that you get on YouTube that you think is just a sign of the times, teenage girls do tend to do that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, there's a 16-year-old who has 5 million views on YouTube or something, and all she does is unbox a new handbag or something, and everybody says, oh, my God, oh, my God. It sort of makes you despair. But it's part of human culture, and this was not being suffocated in Makkah, and the teenage girls in Makkah considered Sukaina to be the great... Influenced her because she was just so stylish and she knew poetry and she knew the songs and so they'd imitate her style of speech and they'd like the poems and the songs that she would know. Um, she was known to be really intelligent, very stylish, very cool. Um, but uh, yeah, this, this style, uh, the Sakina style, was a kind of phenomenon in the Hejaz in that time. And... Uh, Yeah, so here's a, a historian's account of when she was you know, a young teenager. وَإِذَا كَانَتْ حِسَانُ قُرَيْشِ قَدْ أَيَّاهُنَّ أَنْ يَأْخُذْنَ عَنْهَا نَبْلُ الْمَلَامِحِ وَجَلَالَ الطَّلْعَةِ وَنُورِ النَّبِيِ فَقَدْ بَقِيَتْ لَهُنَّ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ أَنَاقَتُهَا يُقَلِّدْنَهَا حَيْثُ مَا استطعن. So all of the beautiful women of Quraysh huh, were struggling to learn the nobility of her gestures and the majesty of her stature, uh, posture perhaps, and the prophetic light which was in her. Uh, and after that, they were fascinated by her elegance, anaqa. They would emulate her elegance uh, whenever they could. So this Sakina, Sakina style, this hairstyle, became very widespread. فَلَمْ تَبْقَ وَاحِدَةٌ مِّنْهُنَّ لَمْ تُنَسِّقْ شَعْرَهَا عَلَى النَّمَطِ الْمُسْتَحْدَثِ So there wasn't a girl in Mecca who didn't rearrange her hair according to this new style 
الذي ابتدع ابتدعته الهاشمية الحسناء which this beautiful Hashemite girl had invented. وراح المجتمع المكي يعرف في بناته أثر النموذج الفريد and every everyone in Meccan society was aware in their own daughters of the influence of this remarkable style leader. ويصغي إلى ما يتناقله القوم من أنباء ظرفها ونوادر تعابتها الذكية المرحة and the talk of the town was uh, of her wit and her jokes and her uh, uh, playful intelligence. So uh, she's uh, young but already uh, an influencer. Now, of course, inevitably, all the young men in Makkah want to marry her. Uh, the only one who took a practical step uh, was uh, somebody called Al Hassan Al Muthanna, who is the son and heir of Imam Al Hassan, so her cousin. So he goes along to Imam Al Hussein to try his chances. And historians, unfortunately, don't really tell us what happened in that uh, encounter. But we know uh, that Imam Hussein answered him like this. So he says, can I marry your daughter? Imam Hussein says, اخترتُ لك ابنتي فاطمة فهي أكثر ابنتي شبهاً بأمي فاطمة بنت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إنها ذات دين وجمال. So he replies, I've chosen for you my daughter Fatima because of my two daughters, she is the one who most resembles uh, my mother Fatima, the daughter of Allah's Messenger, uh, the, she is the mistress of uh, religion and beauty. So we don't know what went wrong. Maybe in the young man's confusion, he'd forgotten to mention which daughter he wanted to marry. We don't really know. Uh, but this is Imam al, al uh, Hussein's uh, view. And then, interestingly, look at what the girl's father then says. <coughs> As for Sukaina, فَغَالِبٌ عَلَيْهَا الْإِسْتِغْرَاقُ مَعَ اللَّهِ فَلَا تَسْلُحُ لِرَجُلٍ She is overcome by her connection to God and she is not suitable for any man. So all the teenage girls in Mecca think, oh my God, I want to be like Sukaina and she does this. The father, who really knows her, says she's with God not suitable for marriage, at least not, not at this time. <laughs> so that seems paradoxical, but her father knew her uh, and believed uh, or saw that her kind of stylishness and her humour was a reflex designed to raise the spirits of the family after the disasters that had befallen them. In other words, it was kind of put on to some extent. Let me cheer up Dad by telling him some crazy joke about the cow that fell over him. Who knows, but just cheer him up because he's getting so much bad news. Uh, uh, and in private, it seems, he recognised that she would throw herself into private devotion, some istighraq, which means like drowning in devotion or the divine <coughs> presence. And it's really important to bear this in mind. Imam Hussein was speaking frankly uh, and knew his daughter uh, and didn't say, no, she's she's immature or she's too superficial. No, he said she's with God. And it's important because often later in the history of Arabic literature, she's remembered as this kind of 
stylish uh, fashion icon uh, who really <coughs> hangs out with poets and singers. <coughs> Not very serious, uh, but that wasn't her father's uh, judgment. And others do say that she was madrabul methal fi taqwa wal iman. She was uh, proverbially uh, pious and believing. Um, now, some people say, well, she became, uh, she was pious when her father was alive and then when he died, she got into poetry and singing and stuff. But we know when she was an early teenager, when she was still in Imam Hussein's house, that she was um, doing these things in, in, in Mecca. In any case, um, it has, Hassan al-Muthanna gets to marry Fatima, but marriage does go ahead. Sukaina stays in her father's house. Now, everybody in Makkah now knows of Sukaina, la tasluhuli rajul. She's not suitable for any man, which Imam Hussein himself has said of his daughter. So, of course, the young men are now kind of confused. Uh, and the interest of the young, man, young men diminished. Some thought she's just above me. She's a great granddaughter of the Prophet, and she's really into prayer and stuff, and all the teenage girls are into her shoes or whatever, but uh, Imam Hussein says she's something different. Um, some, it said, fell into yets or despair. They just couldn't bear it. She wasn't uh, available. But others were cherishing, cherishing the hope, and one of them was a very significant local young man called Mus'ab ibn al-Zubayr, who is, note this again, from the family of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. The Zubayrids are opponents of the uh, Bani Umayya, but they're from Abu Bakr. And his father is uh, Az-Zubayr ibn al-Awam, who's one of the great Sahaba, and who is the grandson of Khuwailid, who is the father of Khadija. So uh, many of these people are related and famous in the kind of traditional Arab way for his generosity, for his courage, for his furusiya, his horsemanship, and for muruwa, generally the kind of chivalric male ideal virtue of the, the Arab. So it's said that if he thought that drinking water would detract from his manliness, he'd give up water. People used to kind of almost think he went to excess in, uh, in this sort of chivalric virtue. So three of his friends discover that his in love with Sukaina and has this kind of hopeless hope. One, of his, one is his brother, Orwa ibn al-Zubayr, another important Sahabi. But he doesn't uh, venture to propose right away, perhaps because he can see that the family is really preoccupied with the political situation. He doesn't want to trouble Imam al-Hussein. Or perhaps because you know, she's still in her mid-teens at the time, she's young. Uh, and then this news breaks that Fatima is going to get married and that Imam Hussein has said of Sukaina, إِنَّهَا لَا تَسْلُحُ rajul, She's not suited, she's not eligible for any man. Uh, and then he changes his mind about proposing to her because he has this kind of pride, this dignity. And he thinks that his reputation will be forever broken if he's rejected. <coughs> he can't stand the scandal. He goes to somebody asking for his daughter in marriage and he's declined, and he said he could never carry that. Uh, so he says he now has to fight his love 
death would be better than rejection. Uh, and there's other stories of uh, Mecca at the time, the sensation that she was uh, causing. One of them is Omar bin Abi Rabia, who is maybe the greatest poet of this early Islamic period. Uh, he's called Omar, and actually he's born on the day uh, Sayyidina Omar dies. Uh, and uh, there's an ongoing controversy in the study of Arabic literature as to whether his poems which are all love poems. He doesn't have any other theme. And his diwan of poems, one of the great monuments of Arabic literature, is all about his exploits with, with women, whether some of them are actually about Sukaina. And this is a big argument in modern uh, sort of Egyptian faculties of Arabic literature. At the beginning of the 20th century, somebody called Zaki Mubarak says, well, Omar actually was this kind of Don Giovanni, and he's got all of these girls' names in his poems. He's, Amin Ali Nu'min anta ghadin famubkiru ghadata ghadin amra'ihun famuhajiru lihajati nafsil lam taqul fi jawabiha fatublighah udran wal maqalatu tu'adhiru. So yes, these, it's great poetry and he's talking here about a girl called Nu'm and he's talking to some random traveller he meets on the road. Have you come from the tents of Nu'm? Has she got any answer for me? Even if it's no, that means that she's thinking about me, this kind of stuff. Uh, and it goes on, and of course, these things usually end unhappy. Um, uh, so uh, there's, there's a verse in which she says, uh, every time I go near her tents, her relatives are crouching around like tigers. Uh, so that, and uh, ends up, and then the last third of the poem is this rather beautiful description of the desert and the animals, and uh, it's a bit, bit, bit of a downer at the end. But all of his poems are like that, and he sometimes names these women. And in many cases, you can identify them with actual sort of famous, uh, usually Qurayshi beauties of the time. So uh, there's a controversy uh, that this guy, Zaki Mubarak, at the beginning of the 20th century, a rather secular person, initiated and says, yeah, this is how it was. Uh, Medina was in the grip of a very sort of luxurious uh, and indulgent age, and they were just doing song and women and fashion. And why? Uh, it's the Beni Umayyah who wanted to keep them from thinking about politics, so they would send them slave girls and poets, and they kind of got distracted by this. Um, Rather like if you're the king of a Gulf country at the moment and you want people to stop joining Al-Qaeda, you get Maria Carey or somebody to sing and somehow this is supposed to stop young people thinking about it. So this is one, one theory, but um, more recently, uh, Taha Hussein, for instance, mid-20th century, didn't like this quite so much. He thought it was a little unlikely. Um, and then uh, one of the great... Uh, writers about early women in Islam, um, who actually has a book on Sukaina, if you know Arabic, I can recommend it. It's quite a careful book. Uh, she was called Aisha Abdurrahman, known, her nom de plume was Bintashata, the daughter of the riverside, because she was from Dumyat, which is one of the mouths of, of the Nile. And uh, she became a professor of literature at the Girls' College of Ain Shams University in Cairo and writes about a lot of the early women of Islam. She has a book on Sayyidah Zainab, and also is one of the few women in Islamic history to have completed a, a full tafsir of the Qur'an. Uh, and uh, she, 
pushes back against this. She has this idea that men should never write biographies of women. Okay, she's a professor of literature, but she's not, not a feminist. She says, you can't really understand how women's lives operate unless you're a woman yourself. And so in her book, she often says, you know, these stories have been written by men, and they think she's some kind of airheaded person who's into singing and fashion, but they don't really understand woman's experience and the, uh, 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 the, the woman's mind, as she calls it. So uh, this is a debate, and for, for um, Binta Shatit, Omar is kind of part of a culture of a sophisticated enjoyment of beauty, but it's not really talking about actual experiences. <coughs> I lifted the flap of her tent. That didn't happen. It's a kind of fiction uh, that is the basis for um, the subsequent history of um, Islam and amatory verse, which I want to talk about later on. Let me do the biography first, because um, unless we understand this literary context, we won't really get a sense of, of her achievement and how she's remembered. So Omar ibn Abi Rabi'a writes these uh, amazing uh, poems, and some of them maybe are about her, maybe not. There aren't any solid manuscripts that indicate that her name, Sukaina, is in any of his poems definitely. They seem to be in some manuscript, but then you've got another manuscript, the same poem, and it's not Sukaina, it's Sa'ida. Nobody um, can really tell. Um, but in any case, uh, this Hajj takes place, and it's a great literary festival as well. And then, famously, during the Hajj, 10,000 warriors of Iraq turn up, some say 40,000, saying, we're going to defend the Ahlul Bayt and Iraq from this guy Yazid in Damascus, uh, come and join us in Kufa. Uh, the Sahaba, and it seems his family, urge Imam al-Hussein not to do this. Uh, his brother, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyah, urges him not to do this. Abdullah ibn Abbas urges him not to do this, but uh, he brings his family uh, on the long journey uh, from Mecca to Kufa, which is the, where the governors of Iraq uh, reside. So she has this last vision of, of the city of Mecca from behind the, the curtains of the Hawadaj, the litter on which she's riding on her camel. And they go to Iraq, and the story of Karbala is a little bit outside uh, topic, but she's there, so we need to mention it briefly. Uh, and she's one of the witnesses to what happened. Uh, they encamp outside Kufa, and there's the Iraqi army but the Iraqi army is not on their side. And they get this, uh, one of the most pathetic letters in history, message from the people of Kufa saying, our hearts are with you, but our swords are against you. So Imam Hussein is there with the people who have come with him, said to be 73, and the Syrians and the Iraqis and the 10,000 heroes who now are thinking better of their Pledge of Allegiance. And, uh, we all know the calamity that, that happens, and the, the Imam al-Hussein's womenfolk are there. Al-Rabab, his wife, is there in a tent in the middle of this little encampment. And uh, al-Hussein's sister, Zainab, is there, and Sukaina is there, and some other women. And the night before the battle, uh, Zainab goes out, it's a famous story, and she Here's Al-Hussein reciting poems that indicate that he's expecting death tomorrow. He's there 
sharpening his sword, getting his armour ready. And hearing this, she screams. In the middle of the night, people hear Sadie Zainab screaming. And the other women come, saying, what's happening? Uh, and he then tells the women that if he dies, they are not to do the traditional mourning things. They're not to slap their cheeks. They're not to tear their clothes. Don't say anything inappropriate. And the women lower their heads and agree. <clears throat> and then there's silence. And then one of the women is heard crying, and it's Sukaina. And Al-Hussein reproaches her and says, you are always the one who used to cheer me up. And then he tells Rabab to take care of her. She's in her late teens, but mum still has to do this. And then he leaves them, stands up to pray. They're in the tent. And the next day, the conflict begins. And they hear this noise, the clashing of swords, and the screaming, and the shouting, and the chanting around the tent. They're in the tent, quite dark, because the tents are made of camel hair. And, um, but around them, there's the heat and the catastrophe. And then the flap of the tent is roughly pulled, and they're told to get out. And so Cana sees the light of day, and she sees the bodies of the heroes lying everywhere. There's the body of her father, Imam Hussein, his uncles, her brother Abdullah, Ibn Hussein, is there dead, her half-brothers, Ali al-Akbar, Ja'far, other family members. She's a family girl, these are the people she loves most, all dead. Some historians say that she threw herself on her father's body before the soldiers pull her away and make her walk kind of, uh, barefoot with the other prisoners to Kufa. Uh, she recites some poetry, and one of the interesting things about Seda Sokena is that even though she's in this poetic world, not much of her poetry has been preserved except uh, laments, really. Um, this is the one for her, uh, well, she has one for her father, uh, and then a Rabab, the widow, um, who's also lost her son, uh, is reciting this on the way to Kufa. إِنَّ الَّذِي كَانَ نُورًا يُسْتَضَاءُ بِهِ بِكَرْبَلَاءَ قَتِيلٌ غَيْرُ مَدْفُونِ صِبْتَ النَّبِيِّ جَزَاكَ اللَّهُ صَالِحَةً عَنَّا وَجُنِبْتَ خُسْرَانَ الْمَوَازِينِ قَدْ كُنْتَ لِي جَبَلًا سَعْبًا أَلُوذُ بِهِ وَكُنْتُ تَسْحَبُنَا بِالرَّحْمِ وَالدِّينِ وَكُنْتَ تَسْحَبُنَا بِالرَّحْمِ وَالدِّينِ مَنْ لِلْيَتَامَى وَمَنْ لِلسَّائِلِينَ وَمَنْ يُغَنِّي وَيَأْوِي إِلَيْهِ كُلُّ يُغْنِي وَيَأْوِي إِلَيْهِ كُلُّ مِسْكِينِ So this is um, Rabab's lament as she's going to Kufa and it's addressed to her dead husband. Uh, the one who was a light from which people sought guidance lies now on the field of Karbala, dead and unburied. Uh, the grandson of the Prophet, may God reward you in the best way on our behalf, and may you be spared any loss at the balance. For me, you used to be a strong mountain. You were the one in whom I sought protection. And you used to keep my company with mercy and religion. Who now will help the orphans and the beggars, and who will... Uh, and who will now protect uh, all of the, the poor?
This is some of the poetry that's a, it's a marthia, it's a, an elegy in Arabic. They go to Kufa and then they're taken to Damascus and shown to Yazid. One of Yazid's courtiers asks if he can take uh, Sulkana as a slave and Yazid won't go this far and refuses. And finally they're sent into retirement. They go back to Medina and they're led by Ali Zain al-Abidin who's been sick and doesn't, uh, isn't killed at the massacre. They enter the city and the crowds of course are there to welcome them. And then uh, another of the women of the Ahl al-Bayt in Medina stands up in the crowd and she has a poem as well. Where's it gone? So it's Zainab bint Aqil ibn Abi Talib. ماذا تقولون إن قال النبي لكم ماذا فعلتم وأنتم آخر الأمم بعترتي وبأهلي بعد مفتقدي منهم أسارى ومنهم خضبوا بدمي ما كان هذا جزائي إن نصحت لكم أن تخلفوني بسوء في ذوي رحمي which means something like what should you say if the Prophet has said to you, what will you do when you are the last of the Ummas? By my family and by my kin, after this loss of them, now I see them as uh, war captives, some of them stained with blood. Uh, this should not be my reward after I have counseled you that uh, uh, to look after my family after I am gone. Uh, this is a famous moment, this uh, Sayyida standing up in the crowd at Medina and reciting this poem. So in Medina, Rabab takes a house and Sukaina stays there. After about a year, Rabab dies, and they say that she died of, of, of grief. Family is really urging Sukaina now to marry in order to, to have children continue the prophetic line. Uh, Fatima is in the home of her husband, Al-Hassan al-Muthanna, and Sukaina does marry, and in fact marries quite a few times, which was quite normal in those days. And unfortunately here, the historians are really in a tangle, and it's very hard to see who she marries first, in what order, or for how long. Um, they tend to focus on interesting anecdotes about her life, some of her humour, and some of her poetry. It's really difficult to uh, untangle this. Uh, the Kitab al-Aghani, for instance, is one of the great medieval dozens of volumes, collections of medieval Arabic songs and poems and stories about the poets, uh, gives five different lists of names of people, of men who've married her, so it's really hard to work it out. Most of the lists, however, include the name of Mus'ab ibn Zubair, remember the one who was thinking, hoping to marry her earlier, and ibn Khalikan, and many of the historians say that probably he was uh, her first uh, husband. So we have this, uh, and it seems to have been a happy marriage. Yeah, there's lots of poetry about his courage and his, his manliness, his, his virility. Ubaidullah bin Qais al-Ruqayyat, one of the great poems of the poets of this great of this period, and she knew him, said, Inma Mus'abun Shihabun Minallahi Tajallat an Wajihi Zalma'u 
ملكه ملك قوة ليس فيه جبروت ولا به كبرياء يتق الله في الأمور وقد أفلح من كان في همه الإتقاء Yeah, it's just a praise poem about Mus'ab. Mus'ab is a meteor from God which illuminates the dark face of the earth. His strength is a true kingdom, but in it there is no oppression and no arrogance. He fears God in every matter, and whoever is suffering from worry will find success when he comes to him. There's lots of other um, praise poetry about Mus'ab, who's really one of the heroes of the Arabs of the time. Uh, remember again that Mus'ab seems to have not just proposed to her, but actually fallen in love with her in Mecca. And uh, there's a story in Ibn Qutayba, Uyun al-Akhbar, which is really an early, one of the earliest works um, of Arabic literature, um, which... Inshallah, we'll try and read the original. Um, this is it's in the CMC library. It's quite an interesting kind of young men's bragging tale. Okay. Ijtama'a Abdullah ibn Umar wa Urwa ibn Zubair wa Mus'ab ibn Zubair wa Abdul Malik bin Marwan bi fina'il Ka'ba. Okay, so one day in the courtyard of the Ka'ba, four men, four young men get together. Abdullah ibn Umar, that's the second Khalifa's son, Urwa ibn al-Zubayr, one of the great heroes, Mus'ab ibn al-Zubayr, his brother Mus'ab, who's the one we're talking about, and Abdul Malik bin Marwan, who's the Umayyad who gets to be Khalifa eventually, Abdul Malik, <coughs> the one who built the Dome of the Rock. So they're kind of young men chatting together. فَقَالَ لَهُمْ Mus'ab تَمَنَّوْ Mus'ab says to them, what, what, what's your... What's your dream, we'd say nowadays? What would you really like in your life? So they're kind of fantasizing. فَقَالُوا إِبْدَ أَنْتْ They said, you start. فَقَالْ وِلَايَةُ الْإِرَاقِ وَتَزَوُّجُ السُّكَيْنَ إِبْنَةُ الْحُسَيْنِ وَعَائِشَ بِنْ طَلْحَ بِنْ عُبَيْدِ اللَّهِ بِنْ عُبَيْدِ اللَّهِ So Mus'ab says, what I would like is to be governor of Iraq and to marry Sukaina into Hussein and Aisha bin Talha. Uh, and then Ura ibn Zubair says, Fiqh, wa an yuhmala anhu al hadith, and to be a great narrator of hadith. And Abdul Malik says, I want to be Khalifa. And Abdullah bin Umar says, I want to go to heaven, Jannah. There's young men chatting. And the, the, the point of the story is that all of them actually got these. Wishes, even though it's just kind of young men's speculation. I want to marry both of the most beautiful, sensational women in in the city. And then, uh, shortly after this, the news of Karbala comes, and he does marry Aisha bin Talha, uh, who's another big personality of the period, and he he almost certainly is immortalised in one of Omar bin Abi Rabia's. Uh, amatory poems and also in other other poets like Ibn Qais al-Ruqayat who we quoted a few minutes ago and these become kind of popular songs now she'd already been married to Abdullah bin Abdurrahman bin Abi Bakr Abu Bakr's grandson uh, a marriage which Aisha Siddiqa had herself facilitated the thing is she's from a, the tribe of Taim 
and in the ancient Arabs, the women of Taim were really notorious for being constantly arguing uh, and walking out on their husbands, but also for being extremely lovable. That was what you got. It's, and, uh, there's lots of proverbs about them. Um, uh, so famous for difficult women who are nonetheless beloved by their husbands. Okay. Uh, it's, it's said of, of, of them uh, in one Arabic proverb uh, that uh, they would argue with you when they were conceiving your child, they would argue with you when they were giving birth, but you would never love anybody more than you loved her. So that's their reputation. So uh, she's already been married to Abdullah. She has five children already. Mus'ab's interested, and he sends to her the famous singing girl of Mecca, Azza uh, al-Mayla, who goes to kind of check her out. Um, and in return, she asks Azza to sing her a song, and she's, of course, very happy about this. And Azza goes back to Mus'ab and describes her. Uh, and she does this in the context of another rather complicated recital, the implication of which is that the only thing that's really wrong with her is that she has big ears and big feet. <laughs> it's a poem that is very uh, appreciative, but it makes this point. So he agrees to marry her, and these rich people, the dowry, 500,000 silver coins, and he gives her another gift of the same amount on top. And she's always difficult, and I don't know if we've got time to talk about the, the, the trials um, that she brought to her. Husband. Oh, yeah. Mus <laughs> uh, and the Musa Yoman, Naima, Elf Dinar, Okay, so he's bringing her a present. The present is these precious pearls, eight pearls. So he comes in, and she's asleep, in siesta time. He drops the pearls gently on her, and she wakes up, and she sees what he's done, and she said, no, my sleep was actually better than these pearls. <laughs> Try the next anniversary. It's lo lots of stories uh, about this. She's really, really hard work. Um, and the ancient Arabs love to sort of cite her as uh, quite a piece of work. But his great aspiration is to marry Sukaina as well. Uh, she's now announced that uh, after the death of her father, she's willing to marry. So Musab rides to Medina and visits Ali Zain al-Abidin saying he wants to become his brother-in-law. Ali agrees, asks Sukaina, Sukaina consents. And according to our historian, Binta Shatit, this happens in the year 67, Musab at the time is governor of Basra, so a big, a big cheese. She's about 20. Uh, so she goes back, but it's back to Iraq, so it's the same journey, she's dealing with those memories. And she's, she enters her new home, and in the traditional style, she's met first by her co-wife, Aisha bint Talha, who dresses herself magnificently for this. And in the home of Mus'ab, she resumes her old kind of bright and cheerful and carefree manner, 
maybe, if you want to psychologise this, because she's back in Iraq, Karbala is not far away. Uh, she remembers the humiliation of being taken in kind of rags and chains to the governor's palace in Kufa. This is another way of blocking out those bad memories. And there was a certain human psychological response. They say, for instance, why, why do the Jews have the best sense of humour, Jewish humours? Everybody likes Seinfeld. Because of their dark history, it's a kind of compensation mechanism. So there's one explanation of why she's one of the great kind of uh, jokers and humorists of the Arabs. Um, and of course, she's a, has this woman, Aisha, who is really making life hell for her husband, is not going to make things easy for Sulkana either. It's the classic situation of the polygamous uh, rivalry. Um, uh, Aisha, constantly difficult, she goes out in bright clothes, kind of shiny silken things, not really appropriate in a Muslim city, and it drives Musab up the wall, but she says, well, God has given me this beauty and it's a great gift, so why should I deprive the world of it? And it doesn't know how to deal with that. Uh, uh, so Kane, she's various, engages in various manipulations to try and um, score one over on Sulkana, but Sulkana, it seems, doesn't reciprocate in kind, but relies more on sort of dignity and adab. Very often they would argue, lots of stories about this, who is the most beautiful? Hmm. So he resolves this one day um, by saying, Amma antiya sukaina fa amlahu minha wa amma antiya aisha fa ajmal. As for you, Sukaina, you are lovelier than her. As for you, Aisha, you are more beautiful. So kind of this is going on all the time. This is uh, an interesting insight. This is actually documented into the difficulties of uh, a polygamous life in a society where everybody is doing this and a lot of men are killed on the field of battle and this is better than uh, widowhood and is accepted as a sunnah and as a normal pattern of life, but it's not easy. And these two really kind of conspicuous and strong-willed women seem to have had this rivalry. Um, but the history books are full of interesting stories about Musab's relationship with, uh, uh, with Aisha bint Talha, but don't tell us anything uh, really about his relationship with Sukaina. We don't know how they got in, except at the end, when he goes out to fight as part of the Zubayrid rebellion, against the Umayyads and his kind of shaham, his manly virtue says he's not going to capitulate, he's going to do it and it looks like it's going to be another Karbala and of course Sukhena thinks it's going to be another Karbala. Uh, we have this exchange which has been preserved so he's setting out لما دخل على سكينة يودعها وقد تهيأ للخروج لقتال عبد الملك when he goes in to see Sukaina to say goodbye to her and was getting ready to go out to fight against Abdul Malik. Sahat min khalfihi, as he turned to leave, she shouted, I'm really sorry about this Mus'ab. And he turned to her and said, Is all of that for me in your heart? قالت, أي والله, وما كنت أخفي أكثر. 
and there's something hidden which is even greater. Now that indicates that she uh, uh, really loved him and was realizing this at that, that moment. And of course he is, um, uh, does lose on the, the field of, of battle. Abdul Malik manages to bribe most of his soldiers uh, who abandon Mus'ab, um, who is killed. And in the governor's palace, the news reaches her and she's devastated, but also furious against those who had betrayed him. It says Iraqis again and make promises and then change their minds. It looks like another Karbala. So this is uh, a tragic life, really. Her grandfather has been killed. Her father has been killed. Now her husband has been killed in a world in which uh, options uh, for women were fairly limited. Uh, so the people of Kufa haven't been on her side. They come their best turbans to offer their condolences. We're so sorry, Sukaina bint al Hussein. Uh, she knows that they're snakes and that they're, they've behaved treasonably. So, famously, as they leave, uh, she has some words for them. Allahu ya'lamu anni ubridukum qataltum. جدي عليا وقتلتم أبي الحسين وزوجي مصعبا فبأي وجه ترقونني أيتمنونني صغيرة أيتمتموني صغيرة وأرملتموني كبيرة So she's really angry with them and says God knows that I hate you You killed my grandfather Ali and you killed my father Al-Hussein and my husband Mus'ab so how, how do you have the effrontery to stand before me? Uh, when I was a child, you made me an orphan. Now I am an adult, you've made me a widow. And then she marches out. Uh, with Mus'ab, she has had a daughter. They argue about the name, uh, but uh, her choice, which is Rabab, named after her mother, prevails. And so after this uh, new... Uh, reverse in her life, she goes back with her daughter to Mecca. Aisha, the other widow, the co-widow, also uh, returns. Um, yeah, and immediately people want to marry Aisha, and uh, uh, yeah, so she's uh, Aisha marries again quite. Uh, Quickly, and the Arab chronicles and sort of gossip columns are now busy with her and her stunts, um, commenting on her relationship with a new husband who is uh, the brother of Abdel Malik. She doesn't mind marrying the brother of the caliph who sent the army against her, her late husband. Uh, Sokaina went into an edda and then seems to have been in a kind of extended mourning, uh, even though she's got this bright, uh, witty temperament. Uh, she's uh, maybe depressed. But we're told, one day her servant girl, Banana, starts sighing. Ah, ah. And so she says, Malik, Walek, she says to her, what's wrong? She said, I really wish we could have a wedding party in our house. The maid is saying this. And uh, so, again, 
cutting through the tangle of the different narrations, uh, we can see what she does next. فَدَعَتْ سُكَيْنَا مَوْلَى لَهَا تَثِقُوا بِهِ وَقَالَتْ لَهُ اذهب الى ابراهيم ابن عبد الرحمن بن عوف فقل له ان الذي دفعناك عن قد بدا لنا في انت اخوال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فاخطب سكينا so uh, she calls uh, a, a client of hers a kinsman uh, uh, who she trusts and she says go to ibrahim bin abd rahman bin auf again the son of one of the great sahaba abd rahman bin auf uh, and say to him, we used not to incline to you, but now we see your virtues. You are from the maternal uh, uh, uncles of the Holy Prophet, so seek Sukaina in marriage. This is the way she's doing it. It's the, the, the groom that proposes, but she's inviting the, the proposal. Um, and... Uh, after Mus'ab had died, he had already proposed, it seems, and she'd called him, you know, given him a flea in his ear, but now she seems to have changed her mind. And Ibrahim is happy, so he calls all of his relations, dozens of people, um, to go to the house of Ali Zain al-Abidin to make the formal proposal. And this crowd is kind of noticed in Medina. The gossip gets around. And some are outraged. هَذِهِ تُرِيدُ أَن تَتَزَوَّجَ Ibrahim bin Abdurrahman? That stupid woman wants to marry that man, Ibrahim bin Abdurrahman. He wasn't really considered worthy of her, um, even though her father, Abdurrahman bin Auf, is one of the Ashra Mubashirin bil Jannah, one of the ten men explicitly promised paradise in, in the Hadith. And so the families get together, some of them have sticks, and there's a kind of fight outside uh, Zain al Abidin's house. Uh, and the uh, noise reaches Sukaina's house. And she tells her maid, oh, there's your wedding party. <laughs> uh, and the, the marriage is called off. Um, you know, this is interesting. The society is still tribal, and the old kind of caste system is still understood. You notice that Sukena doesn't mind effectively taking the initiative and proposing to somebody who, in the traditional hierarchy, is some way beneath her. doesn't really seem to matter, but the society can't, can't cope. Uh, and so she kind of gives up and uh, gets another proposal from Al-Isbagh bin Abdul Aziz bin Marwan, who is the brother of the righteous Umayyad Khalifa, Omar bin Abdul Aziz, and this she accepts. So see, again, the lack of kind of tribal concern. Here's an Umayyad from Abdul Malik's family. She's, this, the Ahlul Bayt is supposed to be at daggers drawn with the Bani Umayyad. Here's the daughter of Imam Hussein. She doesn't mind the proposal from an Umayyad, and they marry. Uh, at least it's kind of agreed. They exchange vows, Qabul and Ijab. Uh, and she's, he's governor of Egypt at the time. And she says, the air of Egypt is unhealthy. They have fevers and things. And so he says, all right, I'll build a house for you somewhere healthy. So he goes to one of the uh, hills near Cairo, as it is now, and builds a mansion for her there. Um, then his uncle, the Umayyad Khalifa Abdul Malik, writes to him saying, no, uh, divorce her. Uh, he can remain as governor of Egypt, 
or he can remain as the husband of Sukaina. That's the choice. So he thinks about this and he actually divorces her without the marriage ever having been consummated. And he sends her 20,000 gold coins by way of an apology. Why did Abdul Malik issue this order? Another upset in Sukaina's life. Some say it's because he was jealous. Some say it's because he was angry at the money spent on constructing the mansion. We don't know. Another suitor comes along, Abdullah bin Uthman al-Hizami, Mus'ab's nephew, another one from the Zubayrid faction who have risen up against the, uh, the Umayyads in Mecca and in Iraq. And this time, the marriage is considered by the sort of extended families and the chattering relatives and aunties to be all right. And so the, the marriage does go ahead. And this seems to have been a time of stability and security for her. She becomes a mother again. She has a son, Othman. And Othman... And Abdullah is actually the ancestor of all her present-day living descendants. That's where the line goes. Another son called Hakim, and then Rabiha, who marries Al-Abbas, who's the eldest son of another Umayyad Khalifa, Al-Walid, who's one of the great generals, fights against the Byzantines in Asia Minor. So again, you see the Ahl al-Bayt not hesitating to marry and to marry their daughters into the family of the Bani Umayyah and a lot of Modern-day polarities find this very hard to conceive because those you know, hatreds are very deeply rooted as a result of various manipulations and misunderstandings. If you've ever been to Damascus and you go to the, um, the, the graveyard there, there's the tomb of Muawiyah and there's the tomb of Yazid and they have enormous steel cages around them because of the crazy people that want to attack and desecrate the graves because they were allegedly enemies of the prophetic house, rather than it just being politics, and you get the sense of the real unresolved tensions that are there. But if you look at the Ahl al-Bayt, they married their daughters to Umayyads, and it, uh, they seem to have been very open-hearted about this. Um, there's other, other things that we learn, and I really want to get into her a sort of impact on the growth of Arabic poetry a bit. Um, but I think these family things are important because we do here get an insight into a kind of messy human reality rather than some kind of idealistic plaster saint who's always praying and the husband is perfect and everything is lovely and Islamic. And, uh, this is a real life and these are real circumstances and it's a difficult life. All of those bereavements of you know, family members who she deeply loved, husbands who die one after another, political catastrophes, the, difficulty of being the Ahl al-Bayt in, in that time. Um, precarious, uh, but she maintains her high spirits more or less uh, throughout. Uh, so another suitor comes along. Um, after Abdullah dies, they're married for about eight years. Seems to have been a happy time for her. Somebody else comes. It's always regarded in those traditional Arab societies as, as kind of wronging a woman to leave her on her own as a single parent uh, it's part of her dignity that uh, she should be married. But this time, it's a really strange story. Um, it, this is Zaid bin Omar bin Othman bin Affan, so his grandson of Othman. Again, the idea that the Ahl al-Bayt are against Othman's family, this, the fact that it's Othman's grandson, does not concern her. She's in, probably in her late 40s by now. And he says he really wants to marry her and she can specify any conditions she wants. 
So she says there's three conditions. I'm going to be your only wife and you won't touch any other woman. I have total access to all of your wealth. I can take whatever I want. And you never restrict my movements. I can go wherever I like and you facilitate that. In that world, that's kind of... Now, in Sharia, she's allowed to say things like that, even though it's kind of pushing at the boundaries, but in that position, she can put those things in the contract. Um, uh, and it, another thing that's odd is that his, his <coughs> nickname <coughs> is that he is Abkhalu Quraysh. He's the meanest, stingiest man in all of Quraysh. He's absolutely notorious for doing kind of shocking things and the fact that she's now going to have you know, the pin number of all of his bank accounts uh, but she's quite something he agrees uh, you know the third conditional she can go wherever she likes and he'll have to facilitate that that's that's strange in that world so some people nowadays in arabic literature call her an arab feminist a bit anachronistic really but certainly she did insist in having very considerable power and autonomy now, Zaid has this reputation as being very tight, and when they hear of these conditions as unlikely marriage, uh, people in Mecca are a little bit uncertain and anxious. But they get married. So there's lots of stories in Arabic literature, some of them even in the Arabian Nights, about the kind of funny things that happen between them. The greatest miser of Quraysh, married to this aristocratic Quraysh woman who really likes to give money and to hold big parties and... Very hospitable, very generous. Ah, so, for instance, <laughs> an example of her generosity and not really thinking about wealth is that when she did the Hajj one year, she had her seven pebbles for the Jamarat. She dropped one of them, and how does she get it back? She just pulls off her big ring and throws that instead. Uh, she just, you know, she wants to do her obligation. And uh, she really doesn't care about wealth. Money flows through her. Finger. So of Zaid's meanness, they say that on the Hajj, uh, husband and wife come on the Hajj with you know, their own provisions, five camel loads of food in the evening. She orders the table to be laid. And then some people come along and say, we'd like to greet Zaid, one of the noblemen of our people. Can we greet him? And then Zaid knows that they're going to go for the food. And so he says, ow! And he has this terrible stomachache. And he said, oh, I'm really not feeling well. Awah, khasirati, awah, oh, my belly. Bismillah, irfa'u ta'am, take the food away. Take the food away, bring me some medicine and some hot water. So the guests, of course, think, well, this is not a good moment. So they go away. After they're gone, the food comes back and they have a nice dinner together. So lots of stories about this. Uh, yeah, and there's even another story which is kind of even more extraordinary, but it is in, it may not be true. Um, he has to go on Hajj with the new Khalifa, Suleiman bin Abd al-Malik, it's kind of his duty, but um, he has to get her permission. She's very much <coughs> wearing the trousers in, in the family. She says, okay, you can go, but I will send one of my people with you because I don't want you marrying anybody else or visiting your slave girls in that farm of yours near Medina. Okay, so Zaid goes off on, on the way back from the Hajj, according to this Arabian Nights type story. He says to this servant of hers, it's called Ashab, who's this kind of slightly, if you know Don Giovanni, there's Leporello, who's the kind of slimy guy who arranges all of the dubious 
meeting, so he says, Ashab, I wouldn't mind visiting my farm just for one day. If you don't tell Sokena, I'll give you 400 dinars, golden coins. But you may have to swear, because I know what she's like, that I didn't do anything bad. So he thinks, he says, all right. So he goes off. A day later, he comes back. And so they go back, and Sukaino is there, and Ashab is there, and she makes him swear that her husband has been good. And so uh, Ashab says, yes, I swear, I honourably swear that he's not been out of my sight, and he certainly didn't go near his farm. Uh, and then Zaid actually has a kind of conscience attack and says, no, I'm sorry, I did do it. He doesn't like to see this guy swearing. Uh, and he confesses. And then according to the funny story, uh, of course, she divorces him. Uh, and uh, for Ashab, who's her kind of treacherous leporello, she devises a strange punishment. She spends the money on a very comp- 400 dinar she takes from him. And she orders the carpenters of Medina to make this really complicated box uh, in which she puts a few chickens' eggs. And she says, if any of these eggs don't hatch, uh, you'll be for it. And so he has to physically keep the eggs warm in this strange contraption until they hatch. That's his punishment. Uh, <laughs> so a very kind of unusual witty woman. And then the Khalifa says, no, you can't be divorced. And so he orders for them to get back together again. So let's uh, think some more about what this means about our kind, kind of conventional view of the, the Salaf and their women being kind of like quiet nuns. and She's really not like that. And it's unlikely anybody would have invented this personality because it kind of doesn't fit, 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 fit the narrative. Uh, we're told, for instance, that uh, when she heard that the Umayyads had ordered Ali to be condemned from the minbar during the khutbah in Medina, she herself went to the mosque and when this was happening, stood up in front of the preacher. Uh, Sakina interrupted him and started insulting him for um, criticizing Imam Ali. She orders her servants all to come along and do the same. The preacher can't do anything to her, but orders uh, the police to beat her servants. Um, Another story told about her, of course, this is an age where medicine is primitive. She has something uh, in her eye, which is, it seems, under the surface of her eyeball, and there's a swelling, and it's affecting her looks, and it's very painful. And she has a uh, Greek servant called Drafos, who knows about medicine. And he says, I can do an operation and get that thing out, but it's very painful. Can you bear the pain and stay still? still? And she says, Ballet, certainly. So he does this terrifying surgical operation on her eye and peels back the layers of skin until he gets to the thing that's lodged there and removes it. And Sokena was just lying there, not moving and not groaning until he'd finished the operation. And According to the uh, uh, historians, it left a small mark on her eye, which people considered to add to her beauty. Um, So known 
Let's just talk briefly about the, the literary side of, of it. Um, she dies in 117-736 in the city of uh, Medina. Uh, and we mentioned Omar ibn Abi Rabia and the amatory verse. And again, people are puzzled when they're told that the great impact that Islam had on the poetry of the Arab Arabs was to create a huge tradition of romantic verse. And it's true. And these poets used to gather in her house. Uh, this is the age of Layla and Majnun. It originates from that period, and Majnun is said to have been a real person called Qais. And we have his diwan and his kind of infatuation with Layla, which has given us that idea of courtly love. Because apart from a few verses which may well be spurious, it generally is very chaste verse. Um, there's no kind of explicit stuff. Um, most, of it, most of it is kind of soliloquizing in the encampment after the beloved's gone, God knows where, and remembering happy days with her. Uh, this is the time of uh, the poet uh, uh, Jamil uh, and his beloved Bothena. We have that diwan still. This is the time of uh, the poet Kuthayr and his beloved Azza, and of course Omar ibn Abi Rabi'a and all of these uh, women whose uh, beauty he describes. And people think, well, what, what is going on here? This is the time of the Salaf, and the literature that really everybody is enjoying is this stuff about sort of love. Uh, this becomes very important in Islamic history because uh, the idea of uh, the quest for the beloved becomes probably the most popular mystical trope. Uh, Layla becomes the absent divine. And Rumi says he wants to unveil Layla, to be united with Layla, and he's lost her, and this kind of spiritual nostalgia, and that sort of almost platonic streak of love as nostalgia in Islamic civilization really takes its cue from that early period. And it's not really much there in the pre-Islamic Jahili verse, which is rougher and more pessimistic. Um, there is a genuine uh, romantic dimension, what they call an hubb al-udri, sort of chaste love, um, present in this period. And it's sensationally good poetry. And as we've seen, the teenage girls in Mecca and everybody and her house in Medina becomes a kind of literary salon. And she tries to get all of these people um, to uh, recite for her. Um, so there's a famous incident in which uh, the, the three great sort of poetry singers of the time were resident in Medina at the time, and the greatest of them, Ibn Suraj, wanted the fourth greatest, who was um, Hanin al-Hiri, who lived in, in, in southern Iraq to come and join them so they could have this amazing session of all of the great poetry reciters together in Sukaina's uh, house. And Hanin accepts the invitation, <coughs> comes to Medina, and they all go together to Sukaina's house and she uh, has a big banquet prepared. And then they ask Hanin to sing for them. And everybody in Medina wants to hear this. And of course, there's no microphone, so people get really close to the house and they climb up onto the roofs of the neighboring house, so many that one of the house roofs collapse, collapses and people are hurt. 
So these people are really uh, celebrities, uh, both Jarir and Farazdaq, two of the great early Arab poets, um, who had this great rivalry between them. Half of their poetry is kind of poking fun at the other one, saying uh, he's no good in battle, he's no good in love, and then the other one replies, and it's this, this naqa'id, um, the adversarial poetry of Jarir and Farazdaq are some of the great uh, masterpieces of Arabic literature. And the uh, Kitab al-Aghani preserves a kind of sense of what this would have been like. And it seems that when these poets were present, uh, Sukaina would very much be in charge of the majlis. Uh, she would be behind a, a screen. And she wouldn't speak herself, but she would write a question or a request for a poem on a piece of paper and get her servant girl to take it around. And then she would uh, read it out. And she would say, Kuthair, are you the one who said? And then you'd get the verse. And then Kuthair would say, yes, this is my poem. And then she would criticize it. It's not quite good enough. And this other poem is better. And if only you'd said that, and this is a little bit inappropriate. Uh, and she would always give them a gift at the end of it. Uh, and uh, this is said to be why she preferred Jirir over Farazdaq in a very kind of famous standoff between the two in her, in her presence, in her absent presence. Uh, so uh, we need to finally to think about what this means, that the daughter of Imam al-Hussein is patronizing these love poets in this very Islamic and really very conservative society uh, where the prophetic mosque is next door. Uh, now what's going on probably is that this is the Near East's celebration of the advent of a new era of uh, attitudes to family life and the body. You have to remember what was there beforehand. Basically, Christianity was dominant. And if you read books like Peter Brown's The Body and Society, you'll see what a gigantic transformation that had brought. The big impact that Christianity had on Near Eastern society was that whereas the kind of uh, quite orgiastic uh, sensuality of late Roman culture was suddenly replaced by monasteries and convents and uh, celibate clergy from the time of the Council of Carthage, the late 4th century. That's the thing that Pope Benedict and Pope Francis are kind of trying to get their heads around at the moment. And it's still a huge thing for most of the Christian churches and the Arabs, when they went around the Near East, would find these hermitages everywhere. There is a mortifying monk up there on the clifftop, and there is somebody sitting on a pillar, and was, the whole landscape was full of these renunciants. Uh, and it became, as Peter Brown says, like a, a black sheet descending on the Near East, and everything was kind of like death or an anticipation of death. Uh, and then Islam comes along, and suddenly the values change uh, because of the example of the Holy Prophet وسلم, and the essentially world-affirming message of the Qur'an, which is about the world as signs of God. Everything becomes upbeat again. So I think you can understand this emergence of the romantic principle as central to Islamic literature and then becoming the preferred genre that Sufis and other devotional poets like to use in their metaphorical um, journeys to the divine as part of a general kind of cathartic reaction against the unnatural miseries of a world that was really 
hair shirts and uh, flagellations and the penitential lifestyle. It's the nearest breathing a sigh of relief. Ah, alhamdulillah, we can get back to this. Rather like the suddenness of the Renaissance in Western Europe, you go into, say, a palace of the Renaissance, and the Gothic thing is gone, and the image of the tortured saints have gone, and instead you've got all of the kind of pagan deities naked flying around in the sky, and you think something very strange has happened to Christianity. But that's the kind of reflex, they're snapping out of that unnatural ascetical mode. But the only language Western Europe could reach for was the language of pagan antiquity. So you have these real oddities. You go into the Clementine Hall in the Vatican, and everybody in the Vatican is kind of making war on the flesh and wearing scapulars and hair shirts and pieces of barbed wire twisted around their leg. And they're really into that, all the very polite people with it. And then you look at the way in which the Renaissance popes decorated these spaces, and the ceiling of the Clementine Hall is full of these kind of fat pink ladies flying around in the clouds. This is, this is an imbalance. And this is Europe moving back into paganism, effectively, in its sensibilities. Uh, uh, the Islamic world never experienced that. There's no kind of desire on the part of Muslim princes at any point to return to the old Arab deities or the old Greek deities. There's no trace of that because that reflex against um, the monastic impulse, the Rahbaniya, uh, didn't need to be there because the, the Qur'an had already brought a liberation from that false liberation. So I think one thought that we can... Uh, interest ourselves with is this idea that the whole idea of romantic love, which you don't really get in, in classical poetry, it's not really in Ovid and Catullus, even though they have good love poetry, but the idea of real sort of romantic amatory verse, compared to this period and this amazing sensitivity and sometimes sensuality, um, the Romans can't hold a candle to somebody like Omar ibn Abi Rabi'ah. Uh, and this and the Leila Majnun idea eventually gets into Western Europe. And if you read uh, several recent studies, like Jeffrey Einboden, Islam and Romanticism, talks about how one of the key things that transformed Europe in the Romantic Age, the time of the Enlightenment and onwards, uh, was the translation of Islamic classics from Arabic and particularly Persian into German and other European languages, giving them a latter-day uh, resuscitation of this early Umayyad uh, turn to romantic love as uh, something that is positive and actually even spiritually uh, a possibility. So Einboden's view is that without the existence of this Islamic idea of, of uh, sort of platonic but, uh, but real love, uh, the whole romantic movement in, in Europe really couldn't have got going. And there's other studies of its impact on uh, American literature as well, which is an interesting inversion of the stereotypes, isn't it? When everybody thinks of the Middle East and Islam, it's all very kind of buttoned up and puritanical and monastic. But that may be a contemporary perspective. But as the life of uh, Sayyidah Sakina bint al-Hussein shows us, uh, those people were diverse. And it was a time of because it was a time of hope, uh, a time of happiness in the face of very considerable, sometimes excruciating adversity, and a time essentially of the embrace of life 
and of its brighter aspects. Uh, so that, I think, does represent a paradigm of leadership and one that in our rather darkening times is one that we need to cherish rather more than we do. Uh, God has not appointed the world to be a kind of dangerous minefield, step on some dreadful thing and God will send you to hell forever. No, that's no, that does not do justice to the divine purpose, but rather the world is uh, to be uh, experienced as an extraordinary panorama of divine signs and beauty. The Quran is an aestheticizing document because through our sensibility to beauty, we recognize the divine in the physical world, which is the Quran's argument for God and therefore for revelation and for everything that matters in religion. So you can see her metabolism as being essentially uh, 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 a resuscitation of the Quranic message. Uh, she is uh, experiencing religion as something that gives us life. Yad'ukum lima yuhyikum, that the death-focused uh, Christianity, which Islam was replacing, uh, was now swept away to be replaced by something that affirmed marriage and motherhood and life and uh, biology and the normal functions of our created humanity. So, rahmatullahi alayha, inshallah, we will remember her with affection and respect. And if you do go to Cairo, it's worth going to the Mazar of uh, Sayyida Sukaina, saying a few words there. It's a rather special place. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.